Lord God, we have just sung of your greatness, and I ask you to help us in the places of our unbelief. Lord, become bigger in our perception of you, for you are mighty. I ask you to help me now as I preach and for each one of us. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know what this um, weekend marks? I'm not really a calendar person usually and not real great at anniversaries and stuff, but it occurred to me it was this weekend two years ago that was our last normal Sunday before the ensuing pandemic took over. We literally had about 500 and something people on this Sunday two years ago, and the next week we had 50 and we're on Facebook Live, and then after that I think we had 12 for quite a while, and then just a few staff people. And you know what that started was about two years of fear-driven reporting and op-eds and rumors of the demise of Christianity and how the church is plummeting and it's not gonna revive and all this sort of stuff, and massive fear. We as a society have been dealing with fear for two years in in a disproportionate amount. I mean, fear is always there, but it's been so strong. And as a pastor, I found myself handling that by saying things like, wait a minute. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail, nor will COVID-19 or anything else. Jesus is going to build his church. So I can relax. I can be peaceful about this. It's not my job to build his church. And this is not my church. It's his church. And singing. We couldn't have our choir. We couldn't sing. And we love to sing. And I thought, this is not the end of singing. Angels sing. The scriptures are full of singing. The Psalms sing. Revelation ends with God's people singing. There are commands to make a joyful noise. There are commands to sing psalms and hymns and praise songs to one another. God is not done with singing in his church. And what I did is I just, in my own heart, went to the truths of scripture and the things I believe and know, and what it did is it pushed out fear. It's amazing what faith statements can do in the face of fear. This has been a weird couple of weeks. We've had a number of deaths in the parish, and I went to visit the mother of a parishioner who was in her 80s and was dying, and it was down at the hospital, and she was still on the hospital side, not the hospice side. And in the hospital side, their job is to prolong life, to fight off disease, and to extend things. And she had cardio problems, and she had pulmonary problems, and she had kidney problems. And the whole, her whole body, her tent, as Paul calls it, was breaking down. And um, I went in to visit with her, and we had a fantastic visit. I showed up with my prayer book and oil, expecting to find someone non-responsive, and I was going to do last rites and anoint her. But she was very much there. And I had a great conversation with her. She came to faith when she was 10 years old. She's a dear woman. And um, I asked her what she wanted and what I should pray for. And um, she was fighting fear. She was afraid of dying. And she'd been, you know, cared for and needles and a pick line and all kinds of stuff. And it felt to her like torture. And, and I said, has anyone talked to you about hospice yet? And she said, no. And there's a fear of death. And what I started to do was just proclaim things that are true. Like, in Christ, you're never alone. He's here with you. He's been with you since you asked him into your life at the age of 10. You are not dying alone. You're going into his presence. And Jesus has prepared a place for you. And there are many rooms there, which means you're going to be in a community with people that have gone before you. And he will take you across, he says. I will come and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 
And with these and other words, I started proclaiming truth of Scripture over her, and the peace came. And that was on Monday afternoon, and she died peacefully during our Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday. It was incredible how once she was given permission to go by her family and that she wasn't losing, she was gaining. To live as Christ, to die is gain. And Jesus says, or King David writes in Psalm 23 of the Lord, our shepherd, goes through the valley of the shadow with us. These kind of words of faith started to dispel fear, and it pushed it away. And I wonder, in your life right now, what circumstances are tempting you to take your eyes off of those things that are true of God and look down onto things that will cause fear? What are the fear-inducing circumstances in your life right now? I mean, the pandemic rages on. There's war now in Eastern Europe. It looks like the whole world's falling apart, and in some regards it is. Where is your sight? How is your fear quotient right now? One of the things in our prayer school that I really like is our prayer ministers are trained to ask a very helpful question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? It's always interesting when we ask that question because a lot of times the fear causes a generalized anxiety instead of a specific issue we want to deal with. What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? Are you asking him to extend your years? Ten years. Are you asking him to completely heal you of all this sickness? Are you, do you just want the fear to go away? Do you want somebody to come visit you? Are you, uh, what is it that you want Jesus to do? And it, and it actually forms a prayer in the heart of the person, and it guides us to know what to pray for. What should we ask him to do? And then, and then we deal with this issue. What do I believe Jesus is actually capable of? And we'll come back to that. But my text today is this passage from Mark chapter 5. I forgot to write down what page number it is. Um, one of you probably know, but it's Mark 5, 21 to 43. And it's good to look at this. And what we're going to see is that belief in Jesus overcomes fear. That's my big idea this morning. Belief in Jesus overcomes fear. And I'm going to look at several aspects of things that we believe about Jesus from this passage. This is another one of those Mark sandwiches where he takes a story and right in the middle, pulls, pulls apart the bun, so to speak, and inserts a story in the middle of it to make a sandwich. And something about the inside story and the outside story inform each other. And here, it's belief pushing out fear. Very central to this in verse 36. Do not fear, only believe, is what Jesus says. <clears throat> now, right away, in this sandwich, there are all kinds of parallels. For instance, they're both women or a 12-year-old woman and an older woman. They're both women, and that's always interesting in the Scripture when there's a story of women, much less two. And the one is 12 years old, and the one has had bleeding for 12 years. It's like Mark is saying, guys, don't miss this. I'm connecting the two stories. There are commonalities here. I'm not sure there's any more significance in the 12 than that, but it connects the two. And both have fear. In verse 33, it says, that the woman came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus. And in verse 36, it says, um, Jesus says, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler, do not fear, only believe. So Jairus, when he heard his daughter had died, was overcome with fear of his beloved daughter being gone. And both have something that is considered unclean for a Jew, especially a rabbi. One has a corpse, a dead girl is a dead body, and if you read in Leviticus in the Old Testament, that was something that caused the person to become ceremonially unclean. 
not necessarily biologically, although bacteria and stuff, but it was ceremonial, and they had to step outside of the worshiping community for a season, a number of days, and then depending on the situation, there were certain things prescribed to become able to go back into the worship, and blood, even a monthly cycle, was something that caused a certain ceremonial uncleanliness that caused a time of purification. And Mark is showing us something here with this. And the first thing about belief in Jesus I want to point out is belief in his holiness. His holiness is not compromised by our situation. There is nothing in you that will cause Jesus to lose his holiness. Your sin, your sickness, your uncleanness, whatever it is, does not deter him. Quite the opposite, in fact. And recall, you have to keep going back to the original part of the story. Adam and Eve were the ones hiding, not God. Their sin and rebellion did not cause God to run away from them and become obscure. It caused them to go into hiding, and he went pursuing them. Where are you? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. Who told you you're naked? Did you eat of the tree? Yep. Okay. God does not, he's not pushed away. He goes into it. He brings his holiness in, and he, he changes the situation. So Mark is showing Jesus' lordship over situations, and If you open up to a wider aperture of Mark right here, in the end of chapter 4, he calms a storm, and the wind and the waves immediately cease to be raging, and they say, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? Mark puts these rhetorical questions into his gospel to ask you the same question, who is Jesus? What can he do? What is the extent of his power? He's shown in in that previous chapter that he is Lord over the sea, which was thought of as the place of evil and uncertainty and darkness and the unknown, the depths of the sea. And he was Lord over the nature, wind and waves. And now we're finding that he's Lord over unclean things. So we've got Jesus over in the, the paragraph right before he heals Jairus' daughter. He's over in the Decapolis on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's called the Ten Cities. And it was a Gentile region. And they were keepers of pigs, which are unclean for Jews. Jesus casts out a demon, actually 6,000. He's called legion. There are 6,000 demons in one man. He was awful. This man's condition was deplorable. It was desperate. Jesus goes right in there, casts the demons out, and they ask to go into pigs, which happens, and 2,000 pigs rush down into the Sea of Galilee. And the people of that region beg Jesus to go away. And, you know, interestingly enough, Jesus in his messianic secret that's in Mark's gospel he, he tells everybody not to say anything about raising a dead girl, but he casts out a demon, a bunch of demons, and he tells that man, go into your towns and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. He makes him an evangelist. There's no secret there, but there are people that want him to go away, whereas in the Jewish towns, everyone's going to Jesus. He was doing this dance all the way through the Gospels, right up to the very cross. But what I think Mark is showing us here is that Jesus and his holiness overcome Gentiles, which it was unclean to go into a Gentile's house, pigs, death, blood, a corpse, all of these things. His holiness pushes that stuff back. It's interesting that a cross, an instrument of torture, is now in many churches called Holy Cross. It is a holy cross, a holy cross. In fact, that was the name of the church where I was Dan's, one of his youth pastors, the Church of the Holy Cross in Sullivan's Island. We have recognized that the cross, this instrument of torture and death, didn't somehow make Jesus look like cursed. He took the curse upon him 
and defeated it, and now the cross has been made holy because of who he is. My point is that there is no sin or situation in your life that is so big that Jesus' holiness can't overcome it. So bring it to him, whatever it is. Just go straight to him with it and say help. Because belief in Jesus overcomes fear. Secondly, I want not just belief in his holiness, but belief in his power. Both of these people fall at Jesus' feet. Jairus, this synagogue ruler, comes to him and falls at his feet in humility, acknowledging that Jesus is able. He's powerful enough. Lord, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her and heal her. He comes in in a humble posture. And the same thing, when the woman who touches his garment uh, realizes she's been healed and he searches for her, she comes and falls at his feet in humility, acknowledging his power. But then when he gets to the house where the dead girl is, all those unbelievers, those mourners, those people that don't, that don't trust in him yet, he puts them all out of the house. Just puts them out. He takes the mother and father and just Peter, James, and John and goes into the upper room and then he raises her up and heals her. He is the author of life. And in a sense, he makes a mockery of death here. No, death, you don't get to win. The author of life is in this house now. Get up, I say to you, little girl. Now, if you read just Mark, it's possible to read it and say, well, it doesn't actually say she was dead. And it doesn't say that he said anything about that. He just simply touched her and said, stand up. She could have been sick. But the context tells me she was dead. And Luke says, and when he did this, her spirit entered back into her. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all picked this story up. She was dead. But Jesus says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. You see, the author of life is not deterred by death. And he's able to go in there and raise this girl back to life. And furthermore, he's trying to maintain this messianic secret. So he, sa- he says, do, strictly charges them, do not tell anyone what you've just seen. And so he, I guess he mentions her being asleep to give them a reason for when he brings her back out of the house to a crowd that are mourning her death. That was quite a scene, and I wish we could be, be there to see it. I would love to have been standing there to watch that. The shock, the awe, the confusion, the worship that would have erupted in that moment. Jesus is the one who is powerful, even powerful enough to raise back the dead. Belief in him pushes out fear. So not just belief in his holiness, not just belief in his power, but consider this, belief in his attention to you. He hears your prayers. What do you want Jesus to do for you? He actually hears what you say in response to that. What are you praying for right now, I wonder? It seems, and I recognize I'm going to make a dangerous point here because people have gone into a name it and claim it theology where they say, in the name of Jesus, I declare this to be true, and therefore it has to become true, like it's some kind of mechanical equation, and that's not the case. But what's interesting here is Jesus seems to respect the limits of people's faith. So the woman thinks, if I can just touch the garment of his, the hem of his garment, then I'll be healed. And so it is. Jairus says, if you just come into my house and touch my daughter, then she'll be healed. And he says, okay, and goes with her. In another story where a centurion who's a Gentile recognizes it's unclean for Jesus to enter his house, he says, no, no, don't come to my house. Simply say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, okay, be healed. And he's healed right then. It's like whatever your faith limit is seems to limit where Jesus will serve. It's not that you're limiting him, but he seems to respect your faith. And he says, have faith, have faith, have faith. Don't 
fear, only believe. Look what happens in the next chapter, chapter 6, and I preached on this several weeks ago, so we're skipping it in the Mark series, but when he gets to Nazareth, it says in uh, chapter 6, verse 5, he could, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. They couldn't get past seeing him as Jesus, the boy that grew up in Nazareth. They couldn't, they couldn't see him with the eyes of faith, and so he didn't do many mighty works there. So I wonder, for both of us, in what ways am I limiting Jesus by lack, of un, by lack of belief? How have I made him smaller than he actually is? My prayer before I preached was that he would become bigger in our minds. Not that he's, he can be any bigger, but in my perception, in your perception, what can Jesus do? Or maybe better yet, what can't he do? This is God Almighty we're talking about. He's powerful. And belief in him overcomes fear. So faith statements that would be helpful to you are things like this. His spirit is here with us. He is present here. And if you're a Christian, his spirit is in you. In you, dwells within you. The spirit in you is greater than the spirit that is in this world. Satan and demons and all that stuff. 6,000 in one man. The spirit that is in you is the Holy Spirit of God. This is a truth of scripture. And the spirit, that spirit is stronger than all evil. As I said at the beginning, Jesus is building his church, which is great, because that means we don't have to. In the newcomer's lunch, I remind every class that comes in the two scriptures, Matthew 16 and Matthew 28. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. And in Matthew 28, he says, you go and make disciples. Real clear, everybody knows what everybody's job is. We just have to make dis- disciples. The byproduct will be the church, because Jesus will build his church. Let us never get that mixed up because we end up with neither often. If I try to build his church and forget to make disciples, usually I end up with neither. But if we focus on making disciples and helping people know the Lord and walk with him, the byproduct is always the church and a strong one at that. These are the kind of statements of faith that are helpful. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. So think about choices that you have to make. Think about paths that you're on. Think about wrong choices that you have made. Sheep go astray. And a good shepherd has your best interest in mind. He will lead you back onto the right path. You can't mess this up when you have a shepherd like that. That is so comforting to us. He listens when we pray. So God knows what you're concerned about. Tell him about it. Say it out loud. He hears your prayers. His ear is inclined to his faithful one. And maybe the greatest statement of all, he loves you. God loves you. He is good. Let me close with just um, a personal experience that happened a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I think it's fairly common. Um, somebody told me after 745 they had it as well, or something similar. I was sleeping, and I can't tell you whether this really happened or I dreamt it, I'm not sure, but the outcome was the same. I was sleeping, and I felt the presence of evil enter my bedroom, like a coldness, a darkness, a weight, pressure, not good, you know, just a, like a sense of evil has come in here. Why is there evil here? And, and it was like it was holding my vocal cords. I wanted to say something and could not. And, I, and then, actually, I thought of Martin Luther. And again, I don't know if I dreamt this or this really happened, but all this played out. You know how your dreams go real fast? And, you know, anyway, I remember hearing of Martin Luther, the reformer, and how he was awakened in the night one time with smashing dishes or something in his downstairs, and he assumed an intruder had broken into his house and went down there ready for a confrontation. And then when he realized it was just Satan, he rebuked him and went back to sleep, irritated. 
I remembered that whole thing, and I went, okay, you're messing with my sleep. I'm now irritated. And I just knew I had to say Jesus is Lord. And it took me, it was hard to force it out because my, like, it was like, get off my vocal cords. Jesus is Lord. Peace entered in, it left. Again, I don't know if that really happened or I dreamt it happened, but the point is, the words of faith, the belief overcomes fear. Don't fear, just believe. Trust in God and speak it out loud. Something about speaking out loud seems to be really helpful. It's like it makes it more real. So whatever fear you're dealing with, whatever situation you're dealing with, speak the words of faith out loud over those. Declare God's kingdom truths over those things and ask the kingdom to come. Jesus hears your prayers and he's with you. Belief in Jesus overcomes fear. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the goodness of the gospel. There are so many incredible promises here for us. And Lord, I, I think of the prayer of that man in a different story who said, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that for me and for each one of us this morning. Would you help us to trust you? For you are so good and so capable. You are holy and you are strong. And you hear us when we pray. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.